Welcome to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns. Real people, real voices, real lives. Discussing mental health, addiction and disability in the community. Your weekly window to the real world. Welcome to Take It From Us. Take It From Us. Welcome to the program uh, for May. Can you believe this? We're into May already, 2022. Hope you coped with the long weekends and the school holidays. It was nice. Wasn't it good to get the kids out of the house yesterday, send them back to school? Um, I was speaking to a couple of people last week, a couple of friends of mine who wished that they had learned how to juggle when they were younger, working from home, kids at home, trying to stay busy, trying to stay relaxed. Uh, It feels good to maybe return to a sense of normality. So welcome into the program. We've got a lot to get to today. Remember though too, you can keep in contact with us. We really appreciate all the feedback we get here at Take It From Us. Jump to our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com, Take It From Us. One thing that's been in front of centre for me I think maybe there's this kind of double standard that we have in our society around how we view people who use illicit drugs as opposed to those who might be, say, addicted to prescription medication or who get hooked on, say, morphine. And it seems to me that there's not a hell of a lot of difference in a lot of the drugs that people are using or taking, but our response to those people seems to be markedly different. And that has troubled me for a long time. And we just felt here today that it was time that this was addressed. So we'll talk to Emily Hughes a little bit later on the program. She's from the New Zealand Drug Foundation. She works a lot with people who are addicted to prescription medication, but we also wanted her thoughts just philosophically around how she views the conversations that we are having in our community around this and whether, in fact, there is a double standard when it comes to our response to to people who are using prescription medications who, to me anyway, seem to get a lot more sympathy than those that are using illicit drugs and who find themselves going through the court system. Uh, Daryl Bishop will join the program as well. He's a regular contributor, of course. He's the chief executive of... Of Ember. Uh, I know Daryl is really encouraged uh, by famous New Zealanders sharing their own stories about their mental health journey. So we'll get to Daryl a little bit later in the program and, of course, our Sheldon shout out as well. First up, though, today, addiction specialist Rhonda Robertson uh, from Tapo. She is a Tapo is a national workforce centre for mental health, addiction, and disability in New Zealand. We want to hear her story and how it is that she is helping people in our community. She's got a great story to tell and she joins us on the program. Rhonda, it is so good of you to join us on Take It From Us. How are you? Oh, good, thank you. Good, thank you. How are you? Oh, I'm really good. I've, I've been looking forward to having a chat to you and, and thanks for coming on. We wanted to hear your story about where you've been in your life and, and your experience and, and all of the learnings that you've taken to get to the point where you are now helping others. But just to start with, tell tell us, tell our listeners as to what it is that you're doing and the people that you're helping in our community. Kia ora, Kent. My my current um, role um, is Peer Project Lead Addiction, and I'm the Principal Advisor for Lived Experience, and I work in a National Workforce Development Programme for Mental Health, Addiction and Disabilities here at Tepole, and based in Tamaki, Makoto. And... Um, my role um, is around supporting what we refer to as the consumer peer support and lived experience workforce. And so by that, um, lived experience sort of suggests very clearly that maybe you have had personal experience and 
direct experience of, say, mental health or A&D. In my case, it's Alphon Drugs. So I had a, a personal lived experience of that. That was, that's one of my, well, for all the consumer peer support and lived experience roles, that's the key attribute to, to be in one of these roles, that you've, you've experienced um, you've experienced issues and uh, usually use services. So for mm. me, that was part of my journey of addiction. Mm. Quite a few years, I might add. Yes. Um, but, um, and so very much supporting the workforce, which we refer to it as an emerging workforce, but it's been, as one of my colleagues would say, we've been emerging for a wee while, you know. Mm. But um, it's a workforce that's very much um, gro- uh, growing and more and more people are seeing the value of, you know, coming together, connecting. And um, I know when I first started um, accessing services and I suspect I could go into an addiction service today and talk to people and they'd say the same thing, similar things. What we used to say is, oh, we want somebody who's been there, done that. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, now, I was slightly different when I went to services. I wanted it all. <laughs> you know, no, I shouldn't say that. But, uh, but I actually, um, there's value having, um, you know, at times, uh, highly trained, skilled staff um, in the area of addiction, and then there's times that only my peers who have gone through a similar experience might be able to help me navigate things or sound things out. And I know um, when I um, withdrew off the medication I was on, um, one of my friends at the time told me about when she withdrew and came off methadone and, and how... Um, she couldn't, she had to have a long sleeve top because all the hairs in her arms would go. Now, nobody, I'd never read that before. Nobody had ever said anything about it. And sure enough, I had, I experienced similar things. So those sorts of things, um, understanding it in a way that has, um, I suppose, meaning and you can apply it. So I, for me, that was really helpful. Being a part of that workforce was very helpful and um, when I first got involved in things, the reason I got involved was um, I could generally navigate the services and system. I'd worked in the health and disability sector for a few years before I needed to use health services. But what I saw was sometimes other people, some of my peers, didn't know how to navigate things. And... Um, I don't know, too scared, too afraid, unsure, um, don't want to put your head up to ask questions. So often didn't and just put the heads down and just um, I think of an incident that had of it happened today, who knows, or Anna Tamariki might have been at the school waiting for her to pick her children up, you know, because the environment's changed so much today. Um, and I sort of thought because um, her appointment time was so late. It was about, it was at two o'clock and she had to get over from one side of Christchurch to the other side of Christchurch. And she said, oh, it's 2.30. Um, I haven't been seen yet. And I was thinking, what, what? You know, and, mm. and I sort of thought, wow, 
you know, if it was me, I would have said, no, sorry, that time's not going to work for me. But um, yeah. so, those, so those sorts of things, um, I thought you either have a right or you don't. Do you know what I mean? And um, just because you have an addiction doesn't mean to say um, that you have any lesser rights than anybody else. Um, or that's my perception because after all we're all humans none of us are perfect and um, I don't think anybody's got a job uh, to. A, uh, I don't think anybody's been appointed to a, anoint or judge people so yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah people are people so and I just didn't just say to me where um, for whatever reason people didn't feel they could say that and mm. That made me sad because I knew it was a very discriminated area. Not that I took that on. <laughs> yeah, and judgment, judgment from all of us is ubiquitous, and and it's an it's an enormous part of the problem, isn't it? You've you've worked up and down New in most of, of New Zealand now working with people with addiction. How how would you think? How do you think New Zealand's going in in this area? Well. Um, it's interesting because when I first started working in the health system and accessing services, it was a whole 10 years of reform. So the fact that we haven't had any reforms for the last two decades is pretty impressive, actually. Um, and what I've learnt is that um, each region does often does things slightly different. Um, they might use slightly different language. Um, and um, may and anywhere along that pathway, you might have different interpretations of things. So hence the experience that somebody might have might be very varied. and um, rightly or wrongly um, can be very varied. And I think um, I know when I had to access treatment, it was two and a half years waiting list um, to access um, methadone. So, and at the time, there were people who were ringing up a consumer group I was involved with, desperate. Um, and, um, yeah, which was really sad. And, and oh, methadone was is relatively cheap uh, in real terms and it is the most... Um, researched uh, treatment approach in addiction in the world. Yeah. And um, while, and it's hard for people sometimes to understand it because um, methadone in itself is an opioid. Um, so people go, oh, it's like you wouldn't give gin to an alcoholic, you know, and you'd sort of think, no, you probably wouldn't, would you? Um, now, even though I don't generally use that language, but um, the the thing with um, methadone is the way that methadone works, where if you are on a prescribed a, a, a dose that's working for you, it removes that sense of cravings and then you start focusing on, um, well, other things, you know, what everybody else starts doing. Um it might be, for me, it was, um, well, I was probably at a crossroads where I would have lost my job if I didn't, if I hadn't have um, got on a stable medication and access treatment. Um, so that was really important to me. And had I not, 
I possibly wouldn't be here today because I probably would have gone down another trajectory, you know, and maybe dead or in jail, you know. Um, Yeah, so I was enormously grateful and um, it gave me time to... um, to think about what I wanted to do and I went to university and um, did a double major in political science and sociology um, which yeah um, which fed into my understanding and experiences in many ways because what I had found is um, well there was never such a thing as boredom for a start, um, a lot of the people that I've met on my journey were very interesting and had if it wasn't, if it wasn't for the drugs, um, you know, would have been seen like anybody else in society and often very deep people that often, well, the people I've become, um, have met in my past, often very deep people who sometimes just care too much, mm. you know, and... Like me, um, opioids were a very effective way of numbing my emotions. Um, and, yeah, which is, uh, when I think about some of the things I've heard in the media today, uh, people can live some really sad lives. Do you know what I mean? Outside of their control, things that have happened to them. Um, for me, um, when I was oh, early 20s, I had a... A son, he died of since sudden infant death when he was six months. And then <clears throat> um, also for me, I was also um, adopted. So uh, although I, was, uh, I, I never felt deprived because I wasn't deprived. I was adopted into a loving family and I had a <coughs> happy childhood. But that sense of slight disconnect and because... Um, I identify as Māori when I talk to my birth mother. She said, oh, you're Māori. That's right. Um, but those sorts of things that my son and that, my identity, the things that sit, do you know what I mean? That, um, that become a source of mm, pain, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. Okay. And even now, I still get yeah. But, um, yeah, source of pain. So uh, that's when I um, fell into opioids per se because I'd always, right from an early age, I'd always uh, been a recreational drug user. Um, The fact that some of it was illegal really um, didn't enter my thinking. Um, Mm. And, you know, I don't, don't get me wrong, I don't go around... Oh no, I'm not into laws and things like that, or um, purposely going causing disruption, or just because something's illegal, therefore causing significant destruction around me. But um, I think because of my um, using, which was, uh, or when I was using opioids, was um, late 80s, early 90s. And the time that that was, um, a lot of change was here happening here in New Zealand, and um, it it was heavily influenced by HIV/AIDS, and by that I mean um, injecting drug use. And 
uh, New Zealand, I'm proud to say, um, was the first nationally nationally peer-led and operated needle exchange way back when it started um, and the only national program in the world and we have one of the lowest transmission rates for injecting drug use in HIV and that's because of um, well basically and I never knew this until uh, 2009 that it was a bipartisan approach in Parliament back in the 80s where both National and Labour came together to address um, HIV AIDS and they did it spectacularly well um, so I'm a direct benefactor of that. So when I started injecting, needle exchanges had just set up and you could get um, new equipment, so reduced risk of HIV. And also, less known probably um, is that methadone <clears throat> and, um, was also a part of the government's response to reducing HIV transmission. So um, methadone um, it was their first protocols, I think, in 1992, how to address um, the treatment here in New Zealand to have a more standardised approach and to go from withdrawal to around to retaining people in treatment, recognising that by keeping people engaged and in treatment is better than, no, you're not playing FIR game, right, out to go. <clears throat> like you've solved the problem? No, you haven't solved the problem. You know. Um, okay. So it's very much um, a pragmatic approach. Um, methadone. I know what it did for me, um, and it gave me space and enabled me to think about those things that I was going to do. Um, about how many years? Seven years prior. Um, but then I got involved in using opiates every day so that went on the back burner and that was basically going to university. So I completed my degree um, and then um, actively involved in consumer issues around for people on uh, methadone because it's, um, it's loaded with stigma often methadone and that sense of... Yeah. Um, giving alcohol to alcoholics type thing. And I always remember when somebody said, it's like having a one-car garage rhonda. So when you have your drink of methadone, if you have um, a, a dose that provides a blockade effect, so to speak, um, it'd be like when you drink your methadone and uh, uh, the molecule goes into the receptor sites, I'm probably bastardising this, but I understood it. So the molecule comes to go into the receptor sites and they said, imagine it's a one it's a car and it's driving into a one car garage. So then the car comes in, goes into the garage and all your receptor sites um, have all the cars sitting in the garage. So then if I went off and um, used, say another opioid when I when I'd inject it um, I'm not likely to feel the effect of it because the car's already located in the garage, so the molecule, the opium molecule, is already sitting in the receptor site, so there's no room in the inn. So yeah. um, pharmacologically, there's reasons why that actually works. And, um, and I think when I think about people talk about harm reduction too, and I think 
it's really hard for people to get their heads around sometimes because it's counterintuitive, right? Like giving alcohol to alcoholics sounds counterintuitive. But if you stop and you play it out over a period of time, you see that, um, often see that there's been a, a redu- reduction in risk by um, just slightly um, minimising a little bit of harm across a lot of little variables. Yeah. And I think the best way to describe it would have been, we've had two years of uh, Public Health 101, you know, um, around uh, with COVID, not knowing exactly what the problem is. Um, it might be this and it might be this, but we're still waiting for the research. So what you have to do is provide strategies for every variable, knowing that in any time that variable can move, right? That's that's the ground you're working, working on in that world. And so... Um, and so, you're, so it's really hard. It's a, it can be challenging to get your head around, and um, it can, and so people can understand needle exchange because, oh yes, you know, if you people can get access to new equipment, then they're not sharing it, then they're not transmitting bloodborne viruses, right? That's really quite nice and straightforward. Um, but I probably also look at harm. Um, from a multi-layered perspective and think, um, what would be harm for me if I was using? Because just stopping, you know, if you said to people, oh, no, you need to stop. Well, first of all, you need to be able to engage people. And if um, by you putting your hand up, stop, 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 um, that may... uh, you know the old saying, what do they say? Uh, catching bees with what? And um, if somebody's going to say mean, horrible things to you all the time, do you want to go around there and hear that? Probably not. Do you know what I mean? So people yeah. say, don't do this, don't do that, stop, stop, stop. Um, it's, yeah, it, it can be, you know, even if the, that's what the person needs, at the end of the day, if you cannot engage someone, start the conversation, what they need is irrelevant. You're listening to Take It From Us. My story, your story, our story. Take It From Us. And that was Rhonda Robertson, addiction specialist, talking to us today about opioid addiction and, of course, her story as well. Let's let's move now to talking about prescription medication addiction because there there is a difference, isn't there, between how people are, are treated for prescription medication addiction as opposed to opioid addiction. But I also think there's a difference in, in our society's response to those people. I think people who uh, use illicit drugs wrongly don't get as much understanding or as much sympathy from us as they should, whereas I think people that are addicted to painkillers, people that end up being treated by doctors and are prescribed painkillers and have a real problem, they, they get more sympathy and understanding from us. And, and it's always troubled me. It's, it's troubled me for a long time. And so we thought today would be the day that we would address this. Uh, so we've got Emily Hughes on the program. She's the program lead at the New Zealand Drug Foundation to talk about prescription medication addiction and also her thoughts as to whether uh, my theory is, is accurate or not. Emily, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome to our program. Thank you very much. 
A lot to talk about. We, we just spoke with Rhonda Robertson just a few minutes ago about the opioid substitution therapy. You work at the New Zealand Drug Foundation. What role does the New Zealand Drug Foundation play in OST? Yeah, great. I mean, obviously, we're, we're huge supporters of OST. Um, it's an absolutely great program for people who are wanting to, to stop using opioids like heroin, uh, but need that maintenance treatment. Um, and so in terms of our work, uh, we, you know, we very much support the work that they do. A lot of people who work in kind of that OST network are engaged in some of our groups, like our acute drug harm community of practice. Um, and they're able to give us lots of information about, you know, kind of what's happening, how many people are accessing the service, anything that they're kind of hearing, um, you know, particularly if people are are also still using other drugs whilst they're accessing treatment. Um, but it's, a, it's an amazing service, and obviously we very much support it here. Hmm. If we look specifically at people who have uh, trouble with the use of prescription drugs and people who may be addicted to prescription medicines, what's, is, is there a difference in the programs uh, that are delivered in New Zealand? I mean, generally speaking, I'd say no in terms of obviously if somebody's experiencing addiction to whatever substance, um, you know, they can access a range of services. And, and similar to other substances as well, people can detox from prescription medications on their own without support, um, you know, social detox in the community, or they can enter, you know, treatment services, rehabilitation services. But that's the case for all drugs. So, you know, from methamphetamine to, you know, um, prescription opioids like morphine or, um, or fentanyl or tramadol. Mm. Is, is it a, how, how would you quantify the extent of this issue, this problem in New Zealand, with, with people being troubled by the use of prescription drugs and those that would consider themselves to be addicted to them? Yeah, I mean, I, as it goes for most substances as well, you know, many people who use substances, um, you know, throughout their life or throughout the year will experience kind of little to no harm from them. And then there's a, a group of people on the far end who will experience, you know, more severe harm from those substances. And I'd say in New Zealand, you know, the problem isn't to the extent that it is like somewhere in the, in the United States where they've had abhorrent prescribing, which has caused this kind of really massive crisis when it comes to kind of prescription medication leading into illicit drug use and, and causing lots of death and harm. But certainly in New Zealand, we do see um, people using prescription medication in ways that it wasn't intended to. And we see some of it coming in also on the black market. So that means um, things that are prescribed in New Zealand that are then being offsold to other people who don't need them for, for medical reasons, but also kind of counterfeit pills or pills that are coming from overseas and are being sold here. Um, so I'd say, you know, it's definitely something that's on our radar. Certainly we don't have the extent that there is overseas, but, you know, it's something that we're continuing to watch out for and keep an eye on. Because it is described in America, isn't it, as a crisis, the opioid crisis. We should, should we feel encouraged in New Zealand, therefore, that it's not quite as bad? Yeah, I mean, probably encouraged is, is the wrong word, but certainly, you know, the U.S. had, uh, and North America in general, had the abortion prescribing of strong opioids um, like Oxycontin, which essentially turned into sort of the opioid crisis that we know today with fentanyl and stuff. And, and in New Zealand, we haven't seen abortion prescribing in that way. We have very kind of tight regulations around what's prescribed, particularly medications that have sort of a high potential for abuse, as much as I don't love that term. Um, so it's meant that we've kind of been safeguarded from from those kind of drugs being pathwayed into sort of people experiencing addiction. But um, I don't think, you know, any any country or, or any area is is sort of safe from these these patterns happening. I think that, um, you know, prescription prescription drug use is, is something that, you know, 
has the potential to become an issue in New Zealand and is something that a lot of people do struggle with. So, um, mm. yeah, certainly we're not safeguarded from it, but I think that we've had good practices in place that have prevented us from seeing what we've seen overseas. It seems to me, Emily, as though there is a very strong attitudinal bias in, in our country, in our community, when it comes to the difference between the, the people who we know have drug issues and drug problems, um, maybe even with alcohol as well, who use, say, prescribed drugs versus those people who are using illicit drugs. And it seems to me that we have far more sympathy for the people who are hooked on prescribed or prescription drugs than those that are using illicit ones. Oh, definitely. I, I completely agree with that. I mean... You know, I think it, it, it's a lot different if somebody's saying, oh, yeah, you know, um, I, I snort Ritalin on the weekend. Your average kind of maybe 18-year-old student who's trying to have it as a study aid, if that same person then said, oh, I just, you know, I'm casually going to do heroin, I think a lot of people would have a much more visceral reaction to the latter, um, which, you know, I think I think it can be problematic as well because obviously, you know, all, all drugs run the gamut of having, you know, some drugs um, people can take and experience less harm and some drugs people can take experience more harm. But um, yeah, I definitely think that there's a bit more of a, maybe a moral panic when it comes to illicit drugs um, when it, compared to prescription substances. Yeah, and look, as Rhonda told us, Drug addiction, opioid addiction could happen to any of us, right? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I, I think we saw that obviously in the U.S. as a lot of people who were prescribed this drug Oxycontin, um, you know, then found themselves taking more and more. And then when they couldn't access that drug anymore, they had to search for other alternatives, which is, you know, things like mm. heroin and fentanyl. I mean, I'm, I've been a chronic pain patient for the better part of eight years and have been on and off opioid pain treatment. And I've experienced withdrawal from, you know, medically provided opioid pain medications. And it's an absolutely horrible experience that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And I think, you know, if you don't have the right resources and the right kind of support and the right doctors to help you kind of get through that process, you know, in a way that's medically safe and, and, and helps it not be so bad, I can totally see how that happens to people. So I have a lot of sympathy for individuals who've kind of gone down that pathway of starting mm -hmm. to use prescription drugs, no longer accessing them, and then kind of searching for a good alternative. Um, I think Rhonda's spot on with saying that. I think no one's immune to it. And you can see why people would be looking for good alternatives when in the large number of cases, these people, and you can you can talk to us about about your situation, Emily, where the pain is a physical pain, isn't it? Absolutely. And obviously, one of the things we know about opioids is when people withdraw from them, especially if they were originally using them for pain, that they get this thing called rebound pain, where that pain that they were experiencing all of a sudden is almost all encompassing and sort of they it, it, it almost takes over their mind. And you can imagine any any human in that situation would just want for that to stop. Um, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, that's what happened in the U.S. But um, there's people in New Zealand who experience that as well. I mean, collectively, it seems like we would look down our nose at people that have a problem with, with meth or if, for those people who would have a problem with heroin. But I, I can go back to when I had a knee operation 10 or 15 years ago, and what was the thing that they loaded me up on? And that was morphine. And I, I've, that's the only time I've ever had morphine. And I can remember vividly how euphoric I felt, how great it made me feel. And, you know, in another life, at another time, a different situation, I may have found myself hooked on that. And, and so what's the difference really between that and, say, heroin at, when it comes to 
the response both mentally, psychologically, but also physically. There's not much in it. I mean, it could happen to anybody. Oh, you're spot on. And, and you know, from, from a, a purely kind of chemistry point of view, you know, there's really not. Um, I mean, you know, fentanyl, the substance that has mm. been killing people in North America for the past, you know, 10 years, that's a substance that we also prescribe to people who are in severe pain. Um, so, you know, it's not like it's this foreign substance that we've never heard about before. It's very much something that, that has medical uses. And so you're spot on in saying that, you know, from a chemi- from a chemical point of view, there's really not much difference. It's just, you know, one of them is prescribed and has medical uses and the other one is is not. Methamphetamine, crack cocaine, heroin and a host of others, they are a criminal issue for people that use them. Uh, in my situation and for those other people who have tried morphine or uh, maybe hooked on it or are struggling to come off morphine, we would look at that as a medical problem. I mean, the democracy is astounding to me. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, whenever we're placing judgment on people who use drugs, we're doing them a, a massive disservice, right? I mean, stigma and judgment, whether it comes from kind of people's misconceptions about drug use or not, is, you know, the ultimate end is that we don't get anywhere and these people kind of go further and further into being socially isolated. Um, and so I, I'm completely with you in that. We should treat all, all drug use and all, all drug use issues in the same way, you know, with a very sympathetic lens and with a focus on the well-being of the individual, not kind of moral judgments on whether they should or shouldn't be doing it. So how do we do that? How how can we create attitudinal change in our society? That's that's a million-dollar question, I reckon, Ken. I mean, I think it starts with conversations like these. I really do. I think it starts with talking to people with lived and living experience. I think it starts from talking to people who have, you know, worked with or been in the sector and trying to figure out what are the things that help people to get to get treatment. But I think, you know, like the work that you're doing here with with these these podcasts, I mean – it's completely spot on in that we need to just start talking about drug use in a way that doesn't make it taboo. Um, and so people can feel like they're comfortable coming forward. I mean, lots of these patients who came, you know, who were pain patients who came into their doctors, they might not have felt comfortable saying to their GP, hey, man, I actually think that I might be, you know, experiencing kind of an, a dependence on these drugs. Could you kind of titrate me down? They might feel too awkward to say that. So they let the doctor say, oh, no, all right, we're going to take you off these kind of cold turkey and then things spiral out of control. But it's kind of a societal problem that those people feel like they can't talk mm. about those things in those settings, you know? Yeah, well, I know exactly what you're saying. And it's always troubled me. Like if, if there's a drug that I've used consistently, regularly and overused and abused, uh, it would be alcohol. Yeah. I've, I've abused alcohol many, many, many times and probably still do. Yeah. Yet it's socially forgivable Yet, for so many other people, they can't even talk about their issues because they feel condemned. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that 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 stigma is one of the most massive barriers when it comes to getting people the support is that there's mm. so much stigma around illicit drug use in particular. And I think that's, you know, what you were talking to earlier is that people who have maybe issues with prescription substances, it doesn't feel as, you know, it doesn't feel as sort of foreign to people as illicit drug use does. But there's just as many people, if not more, affected by illicit drug use as there is kind of prescription drug use. So what about the responsibility that falls onto the prescriber and maybe that blurred line between doing the right thing by the patient but also over-prescribing? Where are we with that? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Like I say, New Zealand is is good in terms of, you know, we have a lot stronger regulations around prescribing than they do in other places. Um, But I think, you know, part of it is kind of, 
demystifying that process for practitioners around how do you have conversations with people who you think might be experiencing drug dependence or, or, or addiction to substances and how do you broach that issue in a way that makes that that patient feel comfortable to be able to be honest with you because you know people experiencing addiction to substances you can titrate the doses down so you don't quit cold turkey they kind of do a slow plan to come off of the substances via tapering the doses and stuff and that's something that you know a gp and a patient can work on together but i think part of what you know what what we need to do as an aod sector is kind of help to give practitioners the tools to have those initial conversations and to try and kind of make sure that they're not seeing clients who are experiencing potential addiction to substances and then just cutting them off cold turkey um because we know that that you know that doesn't work that that's never worked especially when it comes to opioids and benzodiazepines in particular are you hopeful one last one last thought are you hopeful that our attitudes in, in New Zealand and our society will change for the better in the coming years? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because before I came into this, before I came into the, the AOD sector in particular, I think, you know, coming from health and research, I really did think that, you know, people were so staunchly against drug use that I kind of thought that it would never change. But the more that I've been working at the Drug Foundation and having these real conversations with people, the more that I realize that all it really takes is, you know, a 15 minute conversation with someone to help them, you know, start to get their head around the fact that not everyone who uses drugs is a bad person. Not everyone who uses drugs has made a bad choice. No, people are in situations because of a multitude of factors. And, and the best thing that we can do is, is, is see them as people and treat them as people. And I think that having been in this space now, um, I definitely feel heartened that while it's been slow progress that I think, I think as a country, I hope that we can get somewhere where we, we see people who use drugs as just as valuable as any other member of society who deserve the right to health care just like anyone else in society. And, and judgment's a huge issue. A lot of us are, are way too judgmental. And, and I would look at the case of somebody that doesn't have a lot of income, mm-hmm. struggling to make ends meet, who's, say, a smoker. And and some in our society would look down on those people and think, well, if you could just quit your cigarettes, you'd have more money. Mm-hmm. But the way I would look at it would be, well, that might be their only small pleasure in life. They, they, don't, they can't afford a beach house. They can't afford a holiday. This is their small pleasure. And we're sitting in judgment of that. Absolutely. And, you know, to assume that every person has the tools that maybe you have, like, you know, me as somebody who kind of has worked in health and studied health and, you know, has a master's of science. I have different skills than somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't have that educational background. Not everyone knows how to even start going about stopping using something, you know, and I think that a lot of people tend to forget that it's like, oh, we'll just quit, Um, you know. A lot of people go, well, well, how? What's my first step? What is the first thing I can do, you know, to take? And I think it's we need to really appreciate that, um, you know, as a society that 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 not everybody knows where to start. Um, well, look, it's, it's been great having you on, Emily. Thank you so much for your input and, and sharing part of your story with us, but also for the work that you're doing. We hope to have you back on the program further on down the track. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much.
from us. The name of that song is Different Skies by Harper Finn. You recognise the name? Yes, it is. It's so Harper is uh, the son of Tim Finn, of course, New Zealand music royalty, a uh, great young talent. Uh, so that was a great track uh, chosen by Karen today. Uh, speaking of great talent, Daryl Bishop, of course, is a regular to our program. We love having Daryl on the show. Uh, he is the chief executive of Ember. Uh, Ember provides person-centred solutions for people experiencing mental distress, addiction issues, and people with intellectual disabilities. Daryl, it's always great to have you on the program. Man, it was a few weeks ago since we last spoke. Time is flying. Really getting into the grist of the year now. It goes so fast the year, doesn't it? I can't believe we're coming into May already. Mm. And, and people learn, well, wishing they were jugglers when they were taught to juggle with, with kids at home, um, jobs, working from home. I've, I've spoken to many people who wish they could juggle properly. <laughs> well, I can juggle, Kent, if ever you want me to. Can you really? I, I've, yeah, I've taught people to juggle. I can teach non-jugglers to juggle three balls in three hours is my claim. I can teach anybody to juggle three balls in three hours. I might have you up about that. Time, I can teach you. Yeah, yeah. Look, I'll, I'll be keen for that. I actually took a juggling class many, many years ago, but it's that third ball's the hard one. Well, it's, it's, it's actually a mental health thing because the reason you can't do the third ball is because you're scared of dropping it. So right. what you have to do is part of that three hours is you throw the third ball and you drop it and you just allow yourself to drop it. Right. Yeah. So that's that sounds like a growth mindset. You're not failing. You're just learning and building that muscle memory. Well, that's right. So, so the reason people can't throw the third ball is because they don't want to let it go because they're scared of dropping it. So you go through a process of allowing <laughs> people to throw the ball away, and that's that's. And then you, your your mind will catch the ball. You you can train yourself to catch the ball afterwards. Right. And, and just a little trick. I, I like that. And your work, are you able to use that as a metaphor for life, the, the whole juggling thing? I don't know about that. I, I, I think sometimes in my in my uh, my personal life, I think about uh, not, not so much juggling, but the fact that, I, you know, at times in my life I've had to deal with lots of things at once. And I, mm. I kind of remind myself the juggling thing for me is because I thought I couldn't do it. It's about mastery. Same with... I, I once learned to surf, and once I'd learned to do it, I gave it up because it's too hard as a hobby. But doing something that you can't do and learning how to do it, I mm. think, is is really, really fulfilling, and juggling was one of those things. Somebody taught me in a day to juggle and then taught me how to teach mm. other people, and I think drawing on those experiences that you've had are really important. Yeah, and, and we know when it comes to personal growth and, and with behavioural change that we want that sweet spot of picking up something that's just a little bit too hard for us but not too easy, and that's, yeah, no, that's how we can excel. Yeah, completely, yeah. I think, I think we underestimate our ability to do things sometimes mm. and uh, sell ourselves short, so it's always good to, to master mm. something new, I think. Yeah. Good. I know, too, that you are, you are encouraged by the increasingly big group of, I guess you'd say, famous people or well-known New Zealanders who are being vulnerable in front of our very eyes. Yeah, I was reflecting on this this week because I had two experiences one is I would never normally watch Dancing with the Stars. It's not my sort of show, but uh, I, I kind of know Sonia Gray. Uh, mm. from. I, I used to manage Like Minds, Like Minds, so I was in charge of running the TV campaign that put famous people on television many years ago, uh, before I was old and grey. Uh, and I met Sonia a few times and, and was always... She's a delightful person. And, and so when I heard she was on Dancing with the Stars, I thought I would watch, and I was struck by her passion about supporting ADHD as her mm. charity so, so and just talking about her personal experience. And then the same day I watched that, uh, 
one of, uh, one of our mayoral candidates, Efeso Collins, is somebody else who I've done some work with in the past. He was on one of our boards. And he messaged me about an article that he'd done talking about his lived experience of, of depression and, and a period in his life where mm. he drew on his faith and his family to get him through a really dark time. And I was reflecting, just, just thinking, Kent, about, you know, I think sometimes we can forget how far we've come and we can be a little bit sniffy about famous people, celebrities, well-known people talking about their experiences because I can remember doing Like Minds and apart from Sir, Sir John Kerwin, who was always just amazing and incredible, it wasn't always easy to get famous people to do it and we're only talking, I'm joking about being old and grey, we're talking about 13 years ago I, I was doing that and, you know, there were many people in, in, in the public eye who wouldn't talk about their experiences because they were worried how it might impact their career, what people might think of them. Mm. And I think with people like JK and, and Sonia and, and uh, Mike King and a, and a raft of people who've just come out and just talked honestly and openly, and, and, and mm. I, think, I think we should celebrate it because, as I said to Efesu when I spoke to him this week, you know, every time a leader or a celebrity or somebody in the public eye uh, speaks publicly about a genuine experience of distress, I think they make it easier for everybody else mm. in, in a small way, you know, in a... Yeah. Not everybody's the same. Efeso's experience is different to Sonia's, is different to JK's, is different to Mike King's. We're all different in our experience of this difficult path that can be life sometimes. But I think when people do it, they do they do make it easier for everybody else. And, and I, just, I just feel like we should celebrate our progress in that area. Because I think we're very... I think we're a bit, a bit sniffy. I think we're a bit sniffy sometimes... Uh, about it and, and i just i just I, I just i was just heartened by it really i felt really positive yeah and also two out of the five or six people on dancing with stars their charities were mental health uh there was a, a young woman i don't know who she was i don't know celebrities anymore uh supporting uh youthline mm. you know and and my colleague shay at youthline did this video of of why this uh why this young woman was supporting Youthline. And I just, again, I thought, if you'd done that show 20 years ago, none of the charities would be mental health. There'd be mm. cancer, there'd be children, but they wouldn't be mental health. And I, th I just, I feel like we've, we've moved, feel like we've moved forward. And I'm, I was really, mm. really heartened, really positive. Yeah, um, we've come a long way since JK put that great book out. Uh, Boys Don't Cry quite a few years. I mean, that was a few years ago we put that book out, and I've admired him enormously. I think the bravery and the courage he has shown to be a community leader is just so admirable, but you're right. Now people are following in his footsteps, and, and to me it just comes back to those three magic words, Daryl. Vulnerability builds trust. It, it does, and, I mean, I don't like telling other people's stories, but, but uh, when, I, when, I, when I worked on that campaign, because people... Probably not everybody remembers, but JK was involved in the anti-discrimination campaign first, mm. and then he went on to volunteer his time. He, he came to us and said, I want to do a campaign of depression, specifically. And the tale he tells, and I, I, I really don't want to... If you're listening, JK, I hope I get this right, but the story he tells, which really, for me, was inspirational, was after he'd done the Like Minds campaign and he'd been on television talking about discrimination, he was there was some mess up with his tickets for an All Blacks game and he had to queue up with all the punters in Park. Something happened. He didn't get his gratis tickets. So he was queuing with punters. And while he was standing in the queue, I think two or three approached him and uh, doing the ad. And one person approached him and said, and I'll try and say this without a way 
emotion in my voice because it always gets mm. me, said, oh, JK, I wanted to come and personally thank you mm. because I'm only alive because you didn't... Because mm. I was in a really dark place. And I, when I saw you, my hero, on that mm. advert, I realised this could be anybody. And, and, and I, I rethought my path and, and I'm here on the planet. And that's when... Because mm. he came back to the ministry and said, oh, I want to do something about depression specifically. And that's when he did the depression campaign mm. and the, all the resources. And then he's gone on to do his own amazing mm. work. And, look, I met him several times doing those campaigns, and he's, he's, he's inspirational. He's the best person I've ever seen talking to a camera for a start. You know, we used to call him one take because he would just do one take and he was done. But, you know, the comfort with which he... But he's led a way to... It's not just JK anymore, is it? You know, that routinely now... People like JK in the public eye will talk about... I was, I, I'm uh, an ex-cricketer, like, not an ex-cricketer, but an ex-hack cricketer, uh, sort of first-grade cricketer, and I was talking to Auckland Cricket and New Zealand Cricket, and they've got people there working mm. with uh, young men coming into professional cricket about being honest about their emotions and feelings. Yeah. And then you get people like Kane Williamson when he was in lockdown talking honestly about the trauma and the challenge of being away from his family and being in lockdown overseas. And I think we've come so far, Kent, and it's wonderful. Well, I look at John Kerwin, and, you know, he was one of my heroes when I was a kid. I was absolutely besotted with sport. And JK was with my top three or four sports figures. And now I look at him, and I honestly think he is now more famous or more well-known or thankfully more beloved for being a mental health advocate and for talking about his own life experiences than he's a rugby player. That's what I think. Well, when he was knighted, I think it was noted that it was for mm. mental health, not just for contribution to sport. And again, you know, I think that that makes it so much easier for other people in the public eye to do that. And I think it's like throwing a rock into a pond, isn't it? You know, yeah. it was a big splash when he did it, but we're still feeling those ripples right mm. across the pond. You know, it's 20, 21 years since he did his first Light Minds campaign. Right. You know, that's that's a long time ago. He was still a professional rugby player, effectively, or just finished. Uh, and 21 years, everything's changed. Mm. And, and he's been a massive part of it. And I think we owe him a great debt of thanks. And all the others, both yeah. famous, but also uh, not famous people who've been part mm. of all of the campaigns. Because Like Minds included, you know, people like Aubrey Quinn and, and, and all of these people who weren't celebrities who also talked about their experiences. But I think... There was a bit of a sort of, uh, what do they call it, a tipping point with JK and Bunny Walters and Mike Chun, some first celebrities in the early 2000s who agreed to be part of that campaign, which, one, I mean, I, when I was in the role, I was I had this really funny experience once. I travelled to Canada to talk about it, and I walked into a room full of people, and they applauded. They, they gave me, like, an, an, not me, they were applauding New Zealand's work and New Zealand's campaign, you know, it was... It was so well-loved overseas and copied, imitated mm. in England, Scotland, uh, Canada, America, Australia. You know, similar campaigns sprung up. And that was all on the back of this group of people mm. who said that they were happy to talk about their experience of mental distress, yeah. which is, it was also how this show was born, Kent. I don't know whether you know the history mm. of this show. It was funded as part of the same campaign and then Framework and now Ember have kept it going because we think it's important, but... It was always that that idea about giving voice to people of the real experience of, of mental distress mm. and addiction, and, and getting people to tell her how it really is, not not how it's presented normally. 
Mm. Yeah, and, and we, we're still going strong after 25 years and we just are so thankful for all of the people that show their own vulnerability and bravery and courage to come on and, and tell us these stories because you're so right, it actually counts. People listen to other people and that, that, that are relatable and they can empathise with and it can go such a long way. And I think you're right, it's really good that you point out the fact that we do have some famous New Zealanders who are who are trying to show the way and lead the way and we should all feel encouraged by that. Daryl, it's always really good Good to talk to you and to have you on Take It From Us. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, lovely to see you, Kent, and, and see you soon, mate. Hoping by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Take it from us. It's that time of the week for our Sheldon shout out. Just before we go, Karen, who are we talking about today? Well, Kent, uh, this week I've just been reading about um, home carers and nurses, people that look after family members in their own homes, people with disabilities, mental disabilities, physical disabilities, the elderly, just wanting to, a big shout out to them for the work that they do. Often it goes um, thanks, I think. And um, just wanting to say thanks to them. They've had it hard during the pandemic. Um, so mm. just a Sheldon shout out 
to those home carers who do we, great work. They do amazing work. I'm just always in awe of the work that they do and yeah we, we need to send them some love because they're doing a magnificent job to help all of us in our community so uh, way to go and it remains for me to thank Rhonda Robertson Emily Hughes and Daryl Bishop for joining us on the program this week thanks to Karen Murphy who's done a great job producing the program and thank you for listening and remember you can keep in contact with us on our Facebook page facebook.com take it from us we look forward to bringing you another program next week please take care You've been listening to Take It From Us with host Kent Johns, produced by Karen Murphy, executive producer Andrew Dewhurst, made with the real stories and voices from our community. And for that, we thank you. For more information on anything you've heard on today's show or for direction on where to seek further advice or assistance, visit our Facebook page, Take It From Us. Zone Cruise.